Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thank you so much for joining us. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and please make sure to check out politicsandreligion.us. That's where you can get, uh, you can download all of our episodes, hit that patron button. And uh, again, it's politicsandreligion.us. We really love love your support so we can continue bringing you conversations like the one we're having today. Miles Taylor. Miles Taylor served in the White House initially in the George W. Bush administration. And then later during Donald Trump's presidency, he was brought into the Department of Homeland Security as a senior advisor to General John Kelly, and then became chief of staff of the department under Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. Miles is also known as Anonymous, the writer of the infamous New York Times op-ed and later the best-selling book, A Warning, sounding the alarm about the chaos of the Trump White House and the amorality of Trump himself. Miles later contributed to the efforts of Republican voters against Trump, and then went on to co-found and is the executive director of the Renew America Movement, an organization committed to supporting principled Democrats, Republicans, and independents in the upcoming elections, as well as shedding light on extremist candidates who are a danger to our democracy. Miles Taylor, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? Corey, I am good, but by by the sound of that bio, you probably want to talk politics, but I thought I was here to talk uh, religion. You you don't want to hear about the life of a young Presbyterian boy in rural Indiana? Well, it depends. Was it Press USA? Like, I'm still getting familiar to all the different denominations and stuff. So I hear, wait, is Press (laughs) USA like the evil one or the the ones that my Baptist friends are saying? No, no, that you might as well be as bad as a Democrat if you're going to Press USA. (laughs) You're you're actually asking the wrong guy. What I can tell you is that Sunday Bible school in small town Indiana is quite a pleasant thing. You get snacks, uh, you have good friends. <laughs> it's a nice spot, but that's, that's awesome. That's uh, it's been a while since I was deep in the church. That's funny because we did go to a Baptist church, a big Baptist church up here for the yeah. first 10 years after I became a Christian. And ultimately, I found a Presbyterian church down in Pasadena that we really feel at home with. And yeah. Uh, the, the comments that I got from guys I was going to Bible study with was, oh, they're all a bunch of liberal, progressive, socialist, commie. I'm like, what? what you t- it's just like they're teaching from the Bible. You know, like, I don't know what you're talking about. So, yeah, it's funny. that. So uh, I, that's been my experience, too. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I got to say that I, as I was jotting, jotting some notes down to introduce you, it occurred to me yeah. that the way I described Renew America Movement's mission, shedding light on extremist candidates who are a danger to our democracy. Uh, I don't know if I, I, I forget if I directly quoted, but, at, you know, along those lines, it could have sounded like hyperbole 10 or 15 years ago or, or like two or three years ago. But like the, for anyone who's pay, paying attention, this is not hyperbole. It's very real. 
Yeah. You know, it's, I, I like that you're using the word hyperbole to describe it because there's almost a, not a day that goes by that I don't say some version of what you just said, which is if I had traveled forward in time from a decade ago to now, I would have thought, what the hell happened to me? You know, I'm railing about extremist candidates and threats to our democracy. And these are things that when I was working in the Bush administration or on Capitol Hill, I would have said, you know, we're just sort of crazy reactionary attitudes towards our political system. But the reality is we have seen extremism hijack our politics. And, you know, people get attacked for being what's called both siders. You can't say that it's happening on both sides, uh, but it is happening on both sides. That's not to say it's equally bad on both sides, but I talk to Democratic members of Congress all the time and Republican members of Congress. And, you know, it's clear where I stand on the GOP side. I do think extremism has hijacked the Republican Party. But my Democratic friends and Democratic members of Congress will say to me behind the scenes, we're only a couple of years behind you guys. We're just a couple of years behind you because the crazies are taking over the far left of our party, too and edging out the centrists. So it, it's a problem in both spaces. And I think it's genuinely an existential threat to our republic. But you know, it's not like we're just making this up. We have history as a guy. We've seen this story before. We've seen this story as far back as 2000 years ago in Greco-Roman times. There are plenty of examples of stable, healthy democracies lurching down the path towards political extremism. And there's examples of them resting themselves back towards rationality. And there's examples of them falling uh, sort of helplessly towards their ultimate demise. Ultimately though, we have a choice. And, and that's why we launched RAM is to say, look, let's wake up to this. Let's elect good guys on both the center left and the center right. And let's get the bad guys out of our politics. It's a lot easier said than done, but it starts with actually doing something about it, not just writing op-eds. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So in reading your book, it's clear that you're very ensconced in history and philosophy, the philosophy of uh, the history of politics. I'm wondering how you think the what you describe. Uh, Jonathan Rausch, we, we talked to not too long ago, uh, describes in detail in his book, The Constitution of Knowledge. And there is this coercive pressure uh, from the uh, from the left, that you can't be a Joe Manchin or a, Kier a Kirsten Cinema or even a, a Mark Kelly. You, you, there's no room for that, or a Spamberger on the left. That I can see where it's going in that direction, as well as the troll culture, if you if you will, uh, from the right. So, what are what are some of the examples throughout history that indicate? Okay, maybe the center will. Inf I thought the 2020 election when it first came out was a center holds election. When we thought the Senate was gonna be held by Republicans, the uh, Republicans gained a few seats, but didn't have majority in the house that the Democrat won the, the uh, presidency. But what are some things where we can redeem some of the toxicity that ails us now and maybe have a center hold, uh, type, center hold going forward, not just in elections, but in our electorate? What would are there some examples throughout history there? Yeah, th there are. Uh, but before that, I'll, I'll just say I, I wish I could write a book with a title like The Constitution of Knowledge. <laughs> I wish I was I wish I was bold enough to say that I could 
spell out a thesis like that. I think that's a great title for a book. And, uh, you know, right now there are a lot of things to give us discouragement about where we're at. I mean, I almost don't need to list them. We, we all sense how bad our politics is getting. And it is genuinely, for students of history, uh, uniquely bad, not totally distinct because we've gone through other bad periods. I mean, let's not forget after the election of 1800, we had politicians literally killing each other because the dispute simmered years and years after that election. We've had periods before, but we are seeing right now so historically high numbers when it comes to things like public attitudes towards political violence and political uh, intimidation. And you're seeing it in the headlines. You're seeing it with disrupted terrorist plots for instance, to go try to kidnap and kill the governor of Michigan. You're seeing it with disrupted plots to go try to kill sitting Supreme Court justices. Um, there was very unfortunately, several weeks ago, a judge who was assassinated in his home. This has happened. And, and I'll say I had a conversation just yesterday with a leading nonpartisan democracy scholar whose comment to me was, we need to be prepared to enter a period of high profile political assassinations. Oh, and I was man. sort of shocked by this because this is a person who's really not hyperbolic, to use the word that you did earlier, not a fear monger, someone who really just looks at the data. And he said, yeah, I mean, I really hate to say it, but we seem to be waltzing into a period that has all of the ingredients of sustained political violence, including the possibility of high profile assassinations. But his comment then back to me was, you know, I, I, he said, you know, I can tell you're wincing at that, but don't think we haven't been through it before. He said to me, you know, you weren't alive when I was in the 60s and 70s when that was a reality. He's like, we've been through it before. And to your question, I, I give you that example because to your question, we don't have to look far, far back in world history. We don't have to look at other countries. We can look at our own country where this has happened before. We did go through a period of low-level sustained political violence in the United States as recently as several decades ago. I mean, there was a spate of domestic terrorist attacks in the 60s and the 70s in the United States because of political turmoil. And we have multiple generations now that never experienced that, but who also don't know the way out. And that's what we need to go reinterrogate and reinvestigate. We need to go so reinterrogate history to say, what were the ways out of those crisis situations? And, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, So, but I'll just give you the, the nutshell version. It's finding political pressure relief valves, right? You need to find that pressure release because if you don't, the violence gets worse. And that's why it boils up in the first place is all throughout human history, and especially in Western civilization, you see democratic backsliding when people feel like their democracy actually isn't representing their worldview. And so the only way to be heard through the system is to go around the system and attack the system itself. And that's the feeling right now on both the left and the right in this country, is they feel like their voices aren't being heard, the system is not being responsive to their demands, and so they're going outside the system. So we need to create those pressure release valves. And there's a whole host of very interesting ways to do that that, uh, that we're starting to see happen. I mean, rarely do you ever put these two words together. And I'm going to say them in a second. You'll know why you never put them together. But it's indicative of really special things happening right now. And those two words are political innovation. Mm. Right now, there's political innovation happening in this country 
behind the scenes in a lot of cases to try to create those pressure release valves. And, and that's the exciting stuff that gives me hope that we'll get through this period and that we've got a chance to take the off-ramp away from political violence. Okay, so I want to get into so much. I mean, first of all, I have questions about your background, state champion debater uh, back in Indiana. I have so many questions. <laughs> how, um, the, how the hell did you find that out? <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I mean, just like being, I think you were still in high school when you were a page. So I got questions just like, what does it look like for what, whatever, it, you must've been like 16 years old when you were a page in DC, but you just brought up some really interesting points. And I, I, I need to dig in on a, a little bit on this. You said pressure release valves and political innovation. So we just yeah. cast a really dark picture of our democracy just to, to give us a little bit of hope, season it with a little bit of hope. Can you give us some examples of some of those pressure release valves, maybe some coming attractions that we've seen, as well as political innovation, maybe some that, that are happening right now or some that you see not too far down the road? Yeah, so uh, let's go through a couple because you're right. When you say words like political assassination, it's pretty damn dark. So how do we avoid that? And we can't avoid that, to be clear. I really want to push back against the notion that we are in an inexorable slide towards you know a dark, fading democracy. There's a quote that I use a lot to make a point that that folks often cite but most famously barack obama would use this all the time he would cite a martin luther martin luther king jr quote where he said something to the effect of you know the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice right a very beautiful concept but i think it's fundamentally wrong in that the presumption behind that statement is that the universe is trending a certain direction that's sort of beyond our control and that's not the case. The arc of the moral universe doesn't fucking bend anywhere. Mm. We bend it. It does not bend itself. So we can either bend it towards justice or away from justice. We have that choice. And I think that is important to recognize when we look at some of the potential solutions to our current very, very toxic political climate is that we don't have to just slide slowly into the demise of democracy. We really can choose to reinvigorate it. We've done it before. We can do it again. So very specifically to your question, what do some of those innovations look like? Well, first of all, we're seeing a whole range of ballot measures being introduced in states across the country to reform the way elections are done. And most Americans aren't paying attention to this, but it's things like ranked choice voting and open primaries and a series of different reforms that make it easier for sensible centrists to go win elections. So I'll give you ranked choice voting as an example. This has been introduced in Alaska and in New York City and other places. Ranked choice voting, rather than only give you a choice between you know two shitty options on the ballot, lets you rank all the options, right? It makes your vote matter more because a lot of people don't go vote because they say, look, I know the bad guy's going to win. So there's no point in me going to vote at all. My vote's not going to count. But with ranked choice voting, you actually get to say, oh, OK, there's five people that are competing for this congressional seat. I don't just have to choose one, recognizing that that one person I really like is not going to win. I can rank them from from best to worst. And then that all gets factored in. The cumulative effect is that, yeah, 
a lot of people's first choice won't win. But if a lot of people agree on the second and third choice, that tends to be a centrist that, that even people on the left and the right agree there's common ground with. So it empowers more centrist to run for office. So reforms like that are actually springing up across this country. All over America, we're seeing those ballot measures introduced. In fact, it's very likely in November that uh, Nevada, for instance, is going to have something that's called final five ranked choice voting on the ballot. You know, it's very interesting where these democratic reforms are right now, because they're in a similar incubation period that we saw with a lot of other major movements over the past few decades. So for instance, a few decades ago, gay marriage and marijuana legalization were seen as things that were sort of left coast uh, policies that weren't going to go mainstream. But guess what? Gay marriage is the law of the land now, and marijuana legalization is on the cusp of happening at the federal level in the majority of the country in some way, shape, or form uh, has legalized or decriminalized it. Uh, again, a few decades ago, that wouldn't have been seen as possible. But then slowly and steadily, more states adopted those positions. And then you see an inflection point where there's all of a sudden a burst of rapid adoption. Right now, with these democracy reforms that will empower more centrists, we're seeing them being experimented with. We're seeing that political innovation in a handful of states. Like I said, Alaska, Nevada, maybe Utah, and some other places. You're going to see that for a few more years, maybe a decade. And I predict there's going to be a burst of widespread adoption as people get more and more frustrated that the political system's not responsive, that it's only electing extremists. They're going to want those pressure release valves for more normal centrist candidates to get elected. So I predict that at the end of this new roaring 20s, you'll see a big burst in adoption of those measures across the country. That's one. And another one is third party politics. There's some really interesting experimentation and happening right now in this country with independent races and third party politics. It's been sort of like gospel in the American political system for a long time that third parties cannot be successful in the United States. We are only a two party system. But in the past few years, those attitudes towards third parties have changed dramatically in this country. In fact, 50% of Americans now say they are no longer a Democrat or a Republican. They are a political independent. 50%. It's the largest number ever in modern American history. And only 25% of Americans, respectively, say they're a Democrat. And another 25% say they're a Republican, which are among the lowest those scores have ever been. So the American people are now signaling a big shift in the political marketplace, that they want more options and choice. And why not? I mean, we live in an era where whether it's food delivery services or ride sharing, we have more choice and competition in every single aspect of our lives, except for, ironically, in the one place where we're supposed to have a ton of choice and competition in our democracy. And so it's again, it's not shocking. Consumers are pissed off and annoyed. They're like, in every part of my life, I can have whatever I want, whenever I want. But in <laughs> politics, I've got two shitty choices, and that's all I got. So there's about to be, and mark my words, in the 2020s, there is going to be a big burst of creative energy in the independent space and the third party space of what I would call political entrepreneurs trying to disrupt this marketplace and introduce more choice and competition. That's very exciting. That will create off-ramps away from the chaos that we've gotten all too accustomed to. 
Okay, so a couple follow-up questions about that. First of all, I think I have the title for this episode. It's We Fucking Bend It. <laughs> That's brilliant. Bend it like bend it like Beckham. There maybe? you go. Yeah. And and Corey, now you understand why I was a state debate champion. It's not because I'm a good debater, it's just because I could monologue to no end. <laughs> and I just would give the other debaters no time to jump in. <laughs> yeah. What is that called uh, when somebody keeps on speaking uh, and, and recites nursery rhymes on the Senate floor? Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Why am I blanking on that, too? It's a filibuster. Filibuster. Yeah, there you go. Filibuster. I'm a born filibusterer. <laughs> OK, so I think that to your point about third party, I've been following uh, Michael Smirconish is someone who's been touting these numbers for years. Uh, as recently yep. as uh, a couple of years ago, that number that you cited was in the low 40s, but I could see where the independent or non-affiliated number would have grown uh, consistently, especially over these last several years. I do want to follow up about something about election reform. I could see where rank choice would start to at least eliminate the extremists. Because to your point, in 2016, I know any number of real conservatives, not like you know OANN conservatives or Trumpian conservatives, but like real yeah. uh, Burkean or, or William F. Buckley type conservatives who were saying there were 15 candidates on the Republican side that I would vote for before Trump, but they, they were left yeah. with no choice by the time the primaries really got underway. Um, but open primaries, we actually have open primaries here in California. How, number one, how would open primaries begin to move towards more, it's not even moderates or centrists, it's just more, less extremists. Um, that how, how would that work towards it? And, and two, perhaps even more importantly, in states that don't currently have open primaries or ranked choice voting, how is it possible to get it on the ballot to even be able, like, it, it, is that an impossible task or are the two major parties so entrenched that they'll never allow ranked choice or open primaries? Well, none of these reforms is a silver bullet. And that's important to recognize is it's gonna take a combination of these reforms to really lower the temperature in our political system. But that said, something like an open primary seems like a no brainer to folks. I mean, we live in a democracy. And if there's a person that's going to be on the ballot for elected office, we should have the ability to choose who that person is in a primary process. But in a lot of states, the, the two parties have, and I hate to use this word because the former president has abused it so much, but they've rigged the system. And both parties have done this. Both parties in red states and in blue states have tried to lock in their gains and lock in their control over the system by making it really hard for outsiders or for the other party to disrupt them. And one of the ways they've done that is to close their primaries and to say, you can only vote for who the Democratic nominee or the Republican nominee is gonna be if you're a member of our party. That's the only way you can do it. And in a sense, that's very anti-democratic in my view, because you're saying to a whole swath of the population, uh, you don't have a voice and choosing who's ultimately going to be on the ballot in November in the election. An open primary says that it doesn't matter. You don't have to say you're a part of a tribe. You're an American, and you inherently have a right to vote. And so you may come into the primary process and vote on who should make it to the final ballot in November. So in a Republican primary, Democrats can vote, Republicans can vote, independents can vote. Anyone can vote, because at the end of the day, they're all Americans. That's what 
is most important is that they have a right to vote and they should decide. The effect of that, though, is you tend to have people step forward when it's an open primary and say, yeah, I may not affiliate all the time with the Republican Party, but sometimes I'm a Republican. But I usually consider myself an independent. But I don't want to see one of these really, really fringe people win. So I'm going to go vote in that primary. And I'm going to vote for the more moderate candidate. So those open primaries tend to give people the opportunity to go vote for more sensible candidates. Instead, the closed primary process really incentivizes the most fervent, most ideological members of a party to go vote. And the result is you end up with more and more extreme candidates whose job is just to pander to those activist members of the party. And oftentimes not even in their own district. Like you get a Marjorie exactly. Taylor Greene who's raising so much money and, and it's almost exclusively outside of Georgia 14. Yeah. And, and it's all, all she has to care about is people who are like her. She basically doesn't have to care about all the other constituents in her district that aren't extremists. So an open primary can help contribute to that by forcing politicians to have to speak to a wider audience. And so that's one way those reforms can work. But to your question about how these things ultimately get adopted, it takes time. It takes ballot measures. It takes votes of Congress. And the big hurdle here is that the two major parties, both of them, are disinclined to see these types of reforms in a lot of cases. Why? Because they fear it will all ultimately cost them their ability to control that state or, or that district. And so it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. And, and some strange bedfellows have to come together. But, you know, I want to make a comment about strange bedfellows, and that is we are in a period of such high political toxicity that your average American really wants to reach across the aisle and do something with the other side. There is enormous catharsis in saying, I'm a lifelong Republican, but you know what? I found common ground with a Democrat because people are really, really fed up with the fighting. I mean, frankly, if there was some big giant national therapist who could put us all down on the proverbial therapist couch, <laughs> I think most Americans would lay down on that couch. They would yeah. say, oh yeah, we need a break from all of this. And so engaging in these types of reform measures with the other side is a form of political catharsis. And I see it on the ground all the time is it's almost, it's sort of when people have that experience of actually cooperating with the other side, it's almost delightful. They're like, oh, this is rare because it's been so long since they've done it. And it offers them a way out of this defensive crouch that we're all in. I mean, we all spent like four years under Trump, whether you voted for him or not, we all spent four years in this defensive, angry crouch. And some of these political efforts that are underway, some of these reform efforts offer a path to, to get out of that defensive crouch and, and just kind of get back to normal. So, yeah, you know, hopefully we'll get there. Yeah. And I, I see some green shoots going back to the 2020 campaign when you had your collaborator at RAM, uh, former Governor Christine Todd Whitman, was one of the speaker, the main speakers at the Democratic National Convention, along with Colin Powell, along with John Kasich and, and other longtime lifelong Republicans. Or we've seen some legislation where, to your point, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill or just last week with the um, they won't call it the gun legislation. I forget what they call it, but a school safety bill or something like that. Um, but yeah. red flag laws. Uh, so we've mm -hmm. seen some green shoots. But I want to take a little bit of time and talk about young Miles Taylor. So 
<laughs> what? Um, oh well, if that's the case, if we're going to talk about young Miles Taylor, oh there we go. Show people what old Miles Taylor looks like. <laughs> He's got a shitty beard, like a patchy beard, and he's trying with this with this flow, but I don't know if it's working. So you know, young young Miles would have been like, dude, what happened to the older you? <laughs> I would little man. B would have said, oh man, I would have hoped that when I grew up, I'd grow a real beard, but. Sorry, kids. Sometimes you have to just settle with a half beard and don't blame your parents. We're, we're both only working it. You know, we're all both only trying. Like <laughs> I got the gray hair. If it was if it, if it was your color, it'd look really, really cool. I, I'd be the full, you know, Alexander, Alexander Hamilton look. But uh, no. I'll take what you got going on. You got a full like Dumbledore thing happening there. I think you put a <laughs> wizard hat on top of that and a wand and you'd have like a whole cult following. Oh man, that's the first time I've gotten Dumbledore, but I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> all right. All right. So is it true that you were indeed the state champion debater back in Indiana? And if so, what sparked that interest? How did you learn the art of debate? Yeah. R- rumors of my debate prowess have been mildly exaggerated, but um, it was, uh, uh, this is going to sound real nerdy to a lot of people. There was this summer camp, a debate <laughs> summer camp that happened at Notre Dame. And when I was an eighth grader, I knew older kids that went to it. And I've really thought it was less about debate and more about, man, it'd be really cool to get away from the parents for a week or two and be on a college campus and stay in the dorms, you know, and meet chicks while I'm there. And uh, that's what got me into debate is I was like, I got to go be a part of that summer camp. And so I convinced my parents. And imagine being the parent who whose eighth grader says, I would like to go to speech and debate summer camp, you'd think, oh my God, I'm so lucky that he doesn't want to do drugs or alcohol. Like he wants to go to a debate. Of course, what's the price? Who cares? I'll send you. So, uh, you know, I managed to persuade them to let me go. And on the margins of trying to date the girls at debate camp, which I was singularly unsuccessful in, which by the way, take that for note. If I couldn't pick up girls at debate camp, imagine (laughs) how spectacularly bad I was in just the regular world. So chicks dig the long ball, not the long debater. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, so, you know, I was left with no option, but to actually pay attention and to get interested in speech and debate. And it was, it was the time of my life. It was, it was so much fun. Uh, And I loved it. And I did an event called Congress, which was like, uh, you know, you fake like you're part of a Congress and, you know, there's bills that get, get introduced and you go speak for uh, or against them. And uh, that was the, that was the event that I, I took to. I, um, I'm sure that's also another dubious distinction is like the one young person in America who actually thought Congress would be a, an interesting thing to do in playtime. Uh, when, you know, right now I'm pretty sure Nickelback is like three times as popular as Congress. Um, uh, I read, this was like two years ago. There were certain STDs that in polls of Americans scored higher in approval than the U S Congress. So anyway, there's that. Yeah. Uh, chlamydia i think polls higher (laughs) um it's interesting when i was in eighth grade we had a a debate and i it was a pre-civil or no it was a a congress around the time of the civil war and i just relished the opportunity to debate from the perspective of the uh representative from louisiana and uh i I just remember yeah referring to abraham lincoln as the villain who perpetrated the war of northern aggression i was playing this like it was fun to play a character but it was an interesting exercise to try to um represent a a cause or or an idea 
um, or further a, a cause that you didn't personally necessarily believe in, but to try to argue from one side or the other. It was a really interesting exercise, especially for kids at a relatively young age. The other thing I was curious about was you got your, like I mentioned before, you got your first job in Congress. I, you were in st still in high school, right? Yeah, for um, for 200 plus years, there's been something called the PAGE program. It goes all the way back to the Continental Congress. I mean, before we, you know, uh, established ourselves fully as a union, young messengers were brought in to work as pages, to, to basically run around, deliver messages and carry packages for members of Congress. That, again, as I noted, continued for about 200 years in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. So they've always recruited a crop of young people every year to come serve in that, you know, in either body. And I was really lucky in high school to get picked to come to Washington as a congressional page. And um, I served in the House. And, and then I got really, really lucky because of the crop of pages that they bring in, they then pick one or two of them to be assigned to the Speaker of the House and to go work in the Speaker's office. And this was just after 9-11, and I got picked to go serve in the Speaker's office. And so I spent a year getting to be right there in the citadel of American democracy, watching the comings and goings of the American political system in a, in a time of war. And it was very powerful. And in a sense, it was enormously inspiring. I mean, the desk that I spent a lot of time at when not in the speaker's office was on the House floor. In the corner of the House floor, there's a page desk where the pages sit and you have this view of the whole floor and you watch the proceedings of Congress all day and you interact with members of Congress. And for me, it was such an uplifting experience to see members of Congress working across the aisle, again, especially to protect the United States in that post 9-11 period. It was a period where the sort of, you know, presidential approval ratings were off the charts. Everyone loved George W. Bush. People were getting along. We were working together. We were in a time of threat. It was a, an amazing moment of unity. And, I, you know, I don't want to take this to a dark place, but there's a very symbolic bookend so far in my career, which is that it sort of began sitting at that desk, feeling very hopeful about American democracy. And then there's an image I'll never forget. On January 6th, everyone's seen that photo of the plainclothes Capitol Secret Service officers with their guns drawn in the House chamber, pointing them at insurrectionists that are trying to come in the chamber. What most people don't know is that door in that photo was being blocked by a desk. And it was the page desk is they'd gone and they'd pushed the page desk all the way to block the chamber. So that same place that I sat and was inspired about American politics ended up being the last line of defense to keep insurrectionists from storming the House floor. And it says a lot about where we've come in the 20 or so years since then as a country, that, that we've got to put uh, a little kid's desk in, in, you know, in front of the chamber to keep it from being overtaken by violence. But there's a way to get that desk back into the corner and a way to get those members of Congress working across the aisle again. It's, it's one thing we're trying to do with our organization and a lot of other folks want to do it too. So in my mind, you know, I'm trying to still trying to get back to where young Miles was, was sitting is let's go back to that period and get folks working together again. Well, in, in drawing a, a, a clearer picture 
a lot of the early part of your career after that time in the House was in the George W. Bush administration, various offices, uh, Department of Defense, the Vice President's Office, uh, for the Secretary of, of DHS. Uh, and having served in several positions in the executive branch during another president's tenure, and then experiencing a Trump administration at a very high, high level, how might you contrast Trump's White House to your other experience? And, and maybe you have knowledge of the Biden administration, the Obama administration. How would you draw those, those that contrast? Yeah, um, the difference between the Trump administration and the George W. Bush administration is the difference between apples and refrigerators. Uh, two, two totally different things. So so not even two mammals, like a giraffe and a horse. No, it's just no, not even, you can't even apples, compare. Apples and refrigerators. <laughs> um, I mean, look, you know, love or hate George W. Bush, and I happen to absolutely love him and admire him. Uh, he's one of the, the few heroes that I have left. His administration was incredibly well-run, very, very disciplined. And there was process and process sounds really boring. And it's the most important boring thing in government that there are rules, things are done in a transparent and predictable way. And importantly, that people feel after decision is made, even if it didn't go in their favor, that it was done right and fairly. And that there's an opportunity to change it if need be. That core element of well-functioning government process did not exist whatsoever inside the Trump administration. There were attempts at process. There were attempts to diligently consider very difficult situations, international crises, things like pandemics, um, important national security issues. But those processes absolutely fell to pieces at the floor uh, on the floor of the Oval Office, because the president wasn't interested in dissenting opinions. He wasn't interested in running a process. He was extremely impetuous and and was you know lurched from decision to decision in any given moment and based on very imperfect information and and frankly, based on his moods. Uh, a lot of decisions were made in the Trump administration in Donald Trump's bed, in the White House residence, from a tweet on his phone. That's one thing if he's deciding what he wants for breakfast. It's another thing if he's deciding whether or not to pull out US troops from Syria. And that's a real example. I mean, there was, you know, in the case of Syria, we've been telling Donald Trump for months, do not pull our troops out of there. Right now, we've got special forces in there that are hunting down ISIS cells who have plots to kill Americans, right? Active plots to attack the United States and kill our citizens, we need to go after the bad guys and get them. But Trump was very grumpy. He didn't want to have any troops anywhere. And before there was even an opportunity to sit down with him and actually think through the options, one day from upstairs in the White House residence, while he was consulting no one, he just tweeted it into existence. He just tweeted, nope, we're pulling out of Syria. Wow. I remember I was sitting in John Kelly's office when he was White House Chief of Staff, John Bolton, the National Security advisor was sitting right there. And the first time that the president's chief of staff, national security advisor, and secretary of defense found out that the United States of America was pulling out of Syria was when a staffer walked in and said, hey, I just saw on the news that the president tweeted that we're pulling out of Syria. And he hadn't come down from the residence in the morning. That's not only not a way to run a railroad, that's not a way to run 
the most powerful country in the world is decision by impulse and by tweet. So the the administrations were dramatically different. And I'm, I'm very fortunate that even though I was a baby Bushy, I was a very junior staffer in the Bush administration, I got perspective on what a well-functioning presidential administration looked like because it made it easy for me to see what was happening in the Trump administration to say, something's not right here. Something's not okay. This is not normal. Where a lot of the younger people in the Trump administration had never known anything different. To them, well, this is how an administration was was run. So that influenced my opinion a great deal. Yeah, and I think it underscores, you describe in the book how by the end of the administration, how much worse it had gotten because a lot of those guardrails had been removed. The John Kellys, uh, the, the General Mattises, a lot of those competent um, executives, competent leaders had left the administration. How dangerous of a prospect would it be to be looking at a Trump in 2025? Well, a couple of things. I want to answer the question of how dangerous it is because it's a very real prospect. I mean, folks need to know if I forget my politics, if I'm a betting person and I had to bet right now, whatever money I have on who's going to be elected president and inaugurated in January 2025, the best bet I would tell to a Vegas odds maker is Donald Trump. So this is a very real concern and we need to think about what a second term would look like. But before we dive into that, um, I, I want to push back on that in a second, but but I'll answer please. first and then and then I'll. Yeah, I mean, to the question of guardrails, I was really wrong on this front. You know, I, I published this piece, this anonymous op-ed in the New York Times, which I didn't do to hide myself. I wasn't afraid to take ownership of it. I ultimately unmasked myself. But because Donald Trump is the master of the politics of personal destruction and distraction, I knew that if I went and published it in my own name from his administration, it would be all about him attacking me and no one would pay attention to the message. So it was a device. It was a device to force people. Sorry, you don't get to know who you have to consume the message. And the message is the president is unstable. His own advisors think he's unstable, but there are guardrails and those advisors are aware of how bad it is. And they're working to try to steady the ship. The first two of those things were absolutely true and right. That the president was unstable and his advisors knew it. Everyone talked about it. His cabinet talked about it. We all talked about it. It was the most common conversation in the Trump administration is to leave a meeting in the Oval Office or the White House Situation Room and say, holy shit, the president's out of his fucking mind. That happened daily. The third thing I was completely wrong about, that those people represented guardrails. Because ultimately, those unelected bureaucrats around the president that were trying to contain his worst impulses were exactly that unelected, which meant that the president was able to relatively easily systematically identify and eliminate those individuals from his administration. So when I published that op-ed, within a year, the thesis was completely wrong. Those guardrails crumpled rapidly because the president said, yeah, I can find those people and I can get rid of them. If you can give Donald Trump credit for anything, it's that he has an exceptional radar for morality. Not that he has morality, he could just spot it in other people and, and gets rid of it because he does not want the Oval Office to be a place of debate. He wants the Oval Office to be an echo chamber to validate his own views. And so that's what he did. He got rid of those folks and, um, and those guardrails crumpled. And we should not, in a second term, if it happens with Donald Trump 
comes in again, count on unelected bureaucrats around him to hold him accountable. And, and that's why I ended up coming out and publishing a book afterwards is to basically say, my thesis was wrong. We cannot count on these people around the president to hold him accountable. The only people who can hold him accountable, it's not Congress, it's not the courts, it's you. The Constitution prescribes that the American people get an opportunity to fire or rehire the president of the United States. And that's the only thing that's really going to save us from a second term of Donald Trump. That was true in 2020. It's going to be true again in 2024 if he gets the GOP nomination, is that really we can't count on the courts to try to prosecute him and prevent him from running. We can't count on Congress to go impeach him for a third time. We need to own up to the fact that we, the American people, are the best check against an unconstrained commander in chief. And let's go do our duty and vote to make it make sure it doesn't happen again. So I want to ask about the practical, concrete ways that RAM is actually addressing this. Uh, but I, I do need to ask you that, okay, this is my pushback against, you know, Trump being re, uh, reinstated in, in 2025, January 2025, is that in recent date, uh, as recently as a month ago, I might have said, okay, you know, uh, I'm a measured risk guy. I can see how you're arriving at that calculation. But in recent days uh, and weeks, there are signs that his support is waning within uh, e even current Republicans, um, as, as well as more broadly, those who voted for him in 2020. So Ron DeSantis, for in particular, is someone who just uh, just outpaced Trump in a poll of likely Republican primary voters in New, New Hampshire by 15 points by those who were regular. Um, they, they broke it down. Uh, so regular consumers of Fox News and conservative radio uh, preferred DeSantis by 15 points. So my question is, does someone like DeSantis pose the same kinds of threats that a Trump repeat would? Very good question. On the question of whether Trump is the likeliest nominee, I, I think you have to conclude that even though there are challengers, potential challengers to a Donald Trump 2024 bid, he still is the odds on favorite. Now, there's some encouraging signs that other people could nudge him out of the way in key primary states. But at the end of the day, Trump and Trumpism have completely taken over the Republican Party. And you can't overstate how valuable it is for a candidate to have a Darth Vader-like grip on the party state by state by state. And this was very intentional. Uh, you know, The Trumpers, to their credit, had no designs to just go take the White House and that's it. They wanted to take the whole of the Republican Party and I've seen this on the ground in every battleground state in this country, is that the Trumpers have taken over the party infrastructure all the way down to the local level is, you know, county chairs are losing their GOP elections because they're not supportive enough of the ex-president or because they refuse to say that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Uh, by Joe Biden, those types of things are determining these really grassroots level GOP races. So there's been a full Trump takeover of the GOP. Make no mistake, it is owned by Trump and his allies right now. So even if Trump is you know, running for president in 24 and challenged by other people, he has a massive built-in advantage in that the people who control the levers of a lot of the primary processes are his allies. Uh, and, and there will not be hesitation to stack the deck in his favor. I mean, keep in mind, these are people who've spent now several years talking about rigged elections. And ironically, under the 
guise of election integrity are willing to rig them in their favor. Yeah. And, and again, that's not hyperbole. That's the reality of what we're seeing in these places is they want to make it as easy as possible for Donald Trump to reemerge because that's how a lot of them have risen in the Republican Party. They rose on the coattails of Trump. They don't know. They don't want the uncertainty of another party leader. So he has a built in advantage. That said, Donald Trump also has enormous weaknesses uh, for all the obvious reasons. But the less obvious ones are within the party. And that is Republicans are increasingly trending towards expressing a desire for a new option. And one example would be, you know, last September in 2021, something like 80 or 90 percent of Republicans said that they wanted Trump to be the 2024 presidential nominee. That number has gone down to something like 50 or 60 percent or in some polls, just slightly south of 50 percent where a majority of Republicans say they'd actually prefer a new face. That's really bad for him. The numbers are trending that direction. Trump also knows it. It's one of the reasons he's so anxious to declare that he's running in 2024 is he wants to lock up the field. He yeah. wants to prevent other competitors from emerging uh, and it's causing him panic. So there, there, are, there is the potential for challengers, but to your question about whether we may see a savvier successor who merely does Trumpism on steroids, uh, that's a big worry of mine is I'm not convinced Ron DeSantis is going to be a moderate GOP reformer. I actually think he is a savvier successor. He has learned the populist lessons of Trumpism, and he's actually more capable of implementing them than Donald Trump was. Yeah, yeah. No, so much of what you say. I I have so much more I want to ask you about. Okay, but I know we're limited on time. So all of what you said uh, speaks to the imperative and, and how central RAM is, Renew America movement is, to some of the greatest ills of our democracy right now. As it says on the website, by working together across party lines, we can shift the balance of power in Washington, D.C., away from those who want to dismantle democracy's guardrails and back to real leaders who will put country over party. So uh, three sort of sub-questions. One is, who are some of the renewers? Who are some of the, what's the opposite of renewers? Uh, Dividers. The dividers. Who are some some of the dividers and what is Ram doing about it? Great questions. I'll hit them in quick uh, succession, Corey. The look, the renewers are the unifying center right and center left elected leaders in this country. We've been out there trying to stand with those people. So on the Republican side, it's people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger on the Democratic side. It's reformers like Abigail Spanberger in Virginia. Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan. Uh, But look, some of these people have either been defeated or have tapped out already. A number of our Republican renewers have been, you know, boxed out of their districts, have been defeated in primary races. It's not a good sign on the Republican side. A lot of the rational Republicans are being defeated by radical ones. And so we're trying to protect those that remain. And then on the Democratic side, look, we we, like I said earlier, we are worried that extremism will overtake the Democratic Party, too. So we're trying to protect the most unifying centrist figures in the Democratic Party. Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona, uh, you know, who's flown 38 combat missions and was an astronaut. Who doesn't love an astronaut? <laughs> he's, a, he's a common sense progressive that Republicans can get behind. Uh, and some of those other folks that I mentioned, it's really, really crucial 
that we defend the good guys on both sides and reinforce the center, whether someone's a Democrat or a Republican. The dividers, you know them, you've seen them. It's the Matt Gateses and the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world who are more interested in fame than in legislating. Regardless of someone's politics, we need people who actually want to go work for us. What has Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates done for the American people? Nothing. They, they've been immensely self-serving. And so we've identified those most self-serving members of Congress that need to be defeated, that it's time to send them home and get them new jobs uh, so that we can have you know, people who actually get shit done in Washington. And, and finally, what we're doing about it is we're getting out there to protect those folks getting active in their races and mobilizing independents and disaffected Democrats and Republicans to go support the good guys against the bad guys. But more broadly, we're investing in some of those democracy reforms that we talked about, Corey. We're investing in long-term reforms to the American political system that will ultimately make it easier for rational figures to get elected to public office and to reform our democracy. Uh, so that's, that's what we're working on. We hope folks will come join us in the fight. And in uh, and, and general, Corey, grateful to be in this fight with you. I mean, you you're someone who's been a, a real moral voice on these issues, and we need more like it. And there's strength in numbers. So it's a scary time to come out politically and tell the truth because you get attacked on Twitter or by, by your neighbors or at a barbecue or by the former president of the United States. But the more people who do it, the easier it becomes. So, you know, people like you, Corey, are leading the charge and we're very grateful for it. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I'm just going to put in a plug for the Democratic nominee for California 27 House seat, uh, Christy Smith. She put the conservative, a fiscal conservative like me when she was on the state assembly on her small business committee. And my voice was actually heard and she got not all of my language into uh, legislation that she was advocating for, but she got some of it. So. I think that uh, it, maybe just take a look at it. I'm just going to give her a little plug. Christy Smith in California 27. Hell yeah. But not, I, I usually ask if you have questions for me, but you got to catch a flight. So I'm just going to ask you, how can we find more information about you, the Renew America movement, and all the great work that you're doing? Uh, well, who, who the hell cares who Miles Taylor is? You guys don't need to find information about me, but go to renewamericamovement.com and uh, follow us on, on Twitter at Renew America. And, and Corey, my, my parting question to you would be, if you created your own political party, what would the mascot be? What would the animal be? Oh, that's a great question. I'd want to think about this some more. Like there are some days where I think it would have to be a hermit crab, just, you know, after getting beat up. You can't change the answer. That's so perfect. Oh, <laughs> I want to come back to the you. Hermit party. Point. Yeah. No, certain days when I get my ass kicked by the extremists and the screamers out there, it's definitely a hermit crab. Like, just leave me alone. Um, but most days, I think it's more like my my dog, Charles Mingus III, who just, you know, he's got, got a troubled puppyhood, but, you know, he wants to love everybody. He just doesn't quite know how yet, but he's working it out. He's getting better, you know, so maybe, I don't know. Anyway. All right. That's a, that's a damn good one. People like puppies. So why not? Uh, well, go. we know who to vote for as the political system gets disrupted here in the, in the new roaring twenties, maybe that puppy will serve as a, as an icon for hope and change. There you go. There you go. Miles, this is such a pleasure. It was really um, it was really great to get to know you a little bit better. And listen, next time you're coming to SoCal, give me the heads up because I will introduce you to a sushi place that will change your life. And, and dinner's on me. It will be my I, the, the, the joke is if I brought as many people to the Lord as I brought to Katsuya, I'd have a first row seat in heaven. 
but uh, just let me know when you're coming here. I really want to take you uh, and, and uh, introduce you to some some good SoCal sushi. I'm ready for the life change. I'm into it. Corey, thank you for your courage, brother. You bet, you bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. You can even support our program through the Patreon app on the site or on Patreon at patreon.com slash politicsandreligion. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>